Well, thank you for having me. This is actually my first time in Wisconsin. <laughs> well, this morning we're going to look at the archaeology of the Exodus. And the book of Exodus is, of course, one of the most foundational narratives in the Old Testament and actually the entire Bible. It retells very important historical events that we can use not only for insight into ancient Israel and the world of the Old Testament, but practical application and then all this theological foreshadowing that we then see discussed in the New Testament. But the Exodus is also one of the most debated or controversial books in the Old Testament in terms of is it history or myth? If you go and take a a college, university, graduate course on the Old Testament, you will most likely discuss the Exodus, and your professor will probably tell you that none of this ever happened. And what are some of the reasons for this? And what are the types of things that are typically said in scholarship? Here are a couple of quotes for you uh, by archaeologists. First is by William Deaver. He says, Not only is there no archaeological evidence for such an exodus, there is no need to posit such an event. I regard the historicity of the exodus as a dead issue. So, the idea is that it's been solved. It never happened. We don't even need to talk about it anymore. Another archaeologist, Zev Herzog, says, The Israelites were never in Egypt, did not wander in the desert, The many Egyptian documents that we have make no mention of the Israelites' presence in Egypt and are also silent about the events of the Exodus. So this scholar says that we just have no evidence whatsoever that the Israelites were even in Egypt. And so there could not be an Exodus because they have to leave Egypt in order for there to have been an Exodus. We do, of course, have ancient texts of the book of Exodus as well as other Old Testament texts. Uh, Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, we even have a 3rd century B.C. copy or or fragment of the book of Exodus. But this is more than a thousand years removed from the events. So we can't say that ah, we have this original penned by Moses and therefore all the things that are in here are historically accurate. Now, even if we did have that, still scholars would say, okay, fine. So we have this book of Exodus from 1400 BC, but still, the author, maybe Moses, if they would grant that, uh, he just made up most of this stuff. All right, so we're going to look at some of the external evidence, things that have been discovered through archaeology and other historical sources that connect to what is written in the text of the book of Exodus. There are three main objections to the historical exodus here. First is no Egyptian texts about Israelites in Egypt, supposedly. Second is no ancient Egyptian references to the events themselves of the exodus. And then no archaeological evidence of events. All right, so differentiating there between the Egyptians writing about it and then other archaeological evidence that would indicate an exodus event happened. There are typically three camps that we could look at in terms of one's historical view of the Exodus. The first is that it happened in the 15th century BC, in the 1400s BC. And this is typically 
the viewpoint that you would take if you're just reading the Bible and taking it for what it says and the numbers that are provided within the biblical text. The second is the 13th century BC, and this contains some variants because uh, some scholars like to put it a little bit later in the 12th century. They would say that it was an historical event, maybe a, a semi-historical event for some, and they would read certain passages in a more figurative manner, but still think something happened. And then we have the, the myth version, and that is that it didn't happen. It's a legend. Maybe it's even allegorical. And there are actually uh, many scholars within Christianity and Judaism that take this view and look at the Exodus as something allegorical and not historical. So the myth, the myth view is not exclusive to atheistic or agnostic or secular scholars. So today we're going to be looking at this 15th century view, and I'll start off with why we're taking that view. And there are some variants within this too. Uh, there are some different Egyptian chronologies, but I will uh, explain that as we go. So the setting for this, the geographical setting for the Exodus, is primarily in this northeastern region of ancient Egypt, in the Nile Delta and the eastern part of that, which the Bible calls both the land of Ramses in Genesis 47:11, and it also calls it the land of Goshen. Now, both of these names are found in ancient Egyptian texts. They weren't just made up by some biblical editor many, many, many centuries later. In fact, other place names we also find in ancient Egyptian texts as well as the Bible. Like the city of Ramses is named Pithom, another location, Heliopolis. Uh, there are Egyptian fortresses that uh, in Hebrew are called Migdal. Goshen, as we said earlier, Baal Zephon is a place named in the Exodus story that is also found in Egyptian texts. Uh, Pihahiroth, this is a system of canals. And then we have the Reed Sea. So some of these passages here, Exodus 1.11 names the cities. Uh, 13.17 through 14.2 names some other geographic locations. So in terms of the geography, all of this stuff is known in ancient Egypt. It existed. But of course, just because a place existed in ancient times doesn't mean that all the events happened. So we need to look at some more details. How do we get to the chronology of the Exodus, when it, when it specifically happened? Well, of course, the Bible is our main source for the Exodus narrative. So we go to the biblical text to see if it tells us when that happened. And indeed, it does in at least three different passages, three different books, actually, written by three different authors. The key passage, though, comes in 1 Kings 6.1, because it gives us very specific numbers here. And this is talking about the time when Solomon began construction on the temple in Jerusalem. And it says, In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of King Solomon's reign over Israel, then he started to build the temple. And it even talks about the day and the month. So very, very specific there. Now, it says the 480th year. This means that 479 years have elapsed, and they're now in the 480th year of what we might call the Exodus era. 
And so we know when Solomon was king. Uh, we know that because of the king lists in the Old Testament and because of other king lists like the Assyrians and the Babylonians uh, going all the way down to Roman times. So we're able to match that up. And there's really no dispute in terms of when Solomon was king. His reign started in about 970 B.C. Virtually all scholars would agree on this. So we can do simple addition there. And we add 479 years onto the time of the fourth year of Solomon's reign, which was about 967 B.C. And we get about 1446 B.C. for the date of the Exodus, according to the Bible here. Now, some people say that this passage is giving us figurative numbers, and and we'll discuss that in a minute. But I want to highlight two other passages that also corroborate this approximately 1446 date. Uh, The first is in Judges, the book of Judges 1126. It's in the time of Jephthah. And Jephthah is, he's in a dispute with the king of Ammon. And he's giving this history and he's arguing that, no, this, this is our land and we've been here for a long time. And he says, while Israel lived in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years. So he's saying, we've been here for 300 years, and you didn't do anything about it in all this time. Well, the time of Jephthah is approximately 1100 BC. We know that he's just a little bit before Saul. And actually, if you go to the book of Judges and you add together the time up to when this happens, it's 301 years. So he seems to know that the Israelites have actually been in this region for about 300 years. Well, when did they get to this promised land? When did they get to the area of the Jordan River? That was 40 years after the Exodus, right? So just before 1400 B.C. So we got 1100 B.C. to 1400 B.C. entering the land. 40 more years, 1440s B.C., the Exodus. So see how that also confirms this date. Then we have 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 33 through 37, which gives a genealogy. And in this genealogy, we have a number of people or a number of generations, father, son, 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 etc. And if you count them from the time of David to the time of Korah, so Moses, or the time of Solomon to Moses, essentially, is what we're looking at. You have 19 generations here. Now, we don't know exactly how long each of these generations were, but studies of ancient generations from this period show that typically it's between about 22 to 28 years per generation. If we just go in the middle of that, for convenience sake, that's 25 years. Multiply 25 by 19, you get 475 years. That's extremely close to this 479 years that 1 Kings 6.1 tells us. So that also seems to confirm it. Well, some people say that this is a constructed genealogy, that it's not really a real one, that it's just, it inserts Samuel there to give an example. But, you know, for the sake of argument, it doesn't even matter if it put Samuel in there for the sake of some theological reason, because it's still 19 generations and it's following through Samuel. 
So those three really seem to confirm this 1446 date. Um, <clears throat> I also mentioned numbers 33 because this and some other passages show the idea of an Exodus era dating system. The in the first year after the Israelites came out of Egypt and so on and so forth. This is something that we see repeated a few times. It tells us that they are using the Exodus as a chronological marker. <clears throat> and so, therefore, they're counting actual years, not uh, figurative ideas. Well, one of the ideas about this being figurative or not real numbers uh, comes from something that scholars call the temple dedication genre. So they're arguing that in 1 Kings 6.1, this isn't a real number. It, it's just figurative. It's meant to be taken as a, a long period of time, maybe as uh, 40 times 12 type of idea. You know, they see numbers like 47 and 3 have theological significance, and then they say that because they have theological significance, they can't be real numbers also. But there are temple dedication texts in the ancient Near East just like this one in 1 Kings 6 1. In fact, there are two very oft-cited examples. Well, let's, let's look at what those are, and let's see if they actually give real numbers. First one is the year 400 Stella, made by Ramses II, and this commemorates a temple dedicated to the god Seth at the city of Avaris by his father, Seti I. And it mentions year 400, and he gets into some specifics, the fourth month of the third season, day four. All right, well, if we look at when this temple of Seth was built and dedicated, which the excavators of Avaris put it somewhere in the 1700 to 1680 BC range, and then we see when this stele was made, when it was inscribed by Ramses II, near the beginning of his reign, around 1280 BC, we see it is about 400 years there, okay? So it seems like they're actually trying to tell us it was about 400 years, not 200 years, not 250 years. Another example comes from Mesopotamia. This is an Assyrian king named Tukulti Ninurta I. Now, you can see his reign length there, around 1200 BC. And he talks about a temple that he restored at the city of Ashur, a temple to Ishtar. And he says that 720 years had elapsed when his ancestor, this other king, Elushuma, had constructed the temple. And you can see his reign length there right before 1900 BC. If you subtract these two in time, you see about 720 years has elapsed. So they're also giving us a real number there. So neither one of these are figurative. You can't cut them in half. There's no secret formula there. It's just regular years, just like we should have with Solomon and the building of the temple after the Exodus. So that's why we're looking at about 1446 BC for this time. Uh, by the way, you know, 40 years is used a lot in the Bible and the Old Testament, also in the Exodus. It is theologically significant, but that doesn't mean that 40 years doesn't mean 40 years. Uh, there's, a, there's a stele called the Mesha stele or the Moabite stone sometimes. And in that, we see the phrase 40 years used. The king of Moab talks about how Israel has ruled his area for 40 years. Well, if we go back and look, 
from the time of Omri of Israel to the time of Jehoram when the Moabites took it back, uh, that encompasses approximately 44 years there. Uh, probably was a little bit less than the whole reign length, but again, it's going to be close to 40 years there, not, not some smaller number. All right, what about some of the archaeology then? Well, first of all, <clears throat> did people from the region of Canaan come to Egypt to live there? And we see in Exodus 1.1, it says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So that's, that's the first part of the story. They have to move there and settle there and establish themselves there. And we do have much evidence of people from Canaan who migrated into this Nile Delta region around the time of Jacob and Joseph. Now, they weren't all Israelites. Remember, the Israelites, they just started out as a family. It's Jacob and his family. And over time, they expanded, they grew into a nation. But at the beginning, they were just one, one family among many who had migrated there. Uh, we do have a very interesting artwork from the tomb of Khnumhotep II that shows Semites, as we might call them, or the, the ancient Egyptians called them Asiatics, moving from this area of Canaan into Egypt. And in one of these, this panel here, it shows the family, the group being led by this Egyptian, and then all the people from Canaan, they've got their luggage with them. They've got animals and supplies, and there's men, women, and children shown. Uh, this first guy here that's kind of highlighted, he actually has this multicolored garment on that is reminiscent of Joseph's multicolored tunic mentioned in Genesis 37.3. So this is, it's the same time period approximately as uh, Jacob we're looking at. Same archaeological period. Well, excavations at Avaris, which uh, this archaeological site name is, is Tel El Daba, have been very important in establishing many things connected to the Exodus. And the first is that they found evidence of people settling there from Canaan in the form of things like pottery and specific types of tools and weapons, uh, temple architecture even. We talked about that temple of Seth previously. There's other temples that, that Canaanite people brought in and built in their specific form. There are sheep remains that were excavated, bones of a specific type of long-haired sheep that was imported from this region of Canaan. And then different types of burials, too. Even a couple of statue heads. So here's one of the statue heads. There, there are two of these types known. But what they do is they show somebody who has made it into the Egyptian government, to a high position in the Egyptian government, but they're not an Egyptian. They're what the Egyptians called Asiatic, so it's someone from Canaan, like Joseph. I don't think these are necessarily Joseph, but it shows us the same type of position. And that people like Joseph could have attained that during this period. Now, later on, that was extremely unlikely for someone like Joseph to be promoted in the Egyptian government like that, because basically all of those people from Canaan, the, the Asiatics, they were enslaved by the Egyptians. The Egyptians did not like them at all. And so we, we wouldn't see in later times people like Joseph promoted. 
Uh, we've got an Egyptian inscriptions talking about these Canaanite-type people living in the Delta also. One of those is the Speos Artemidos inscription of a pharaoh named Hatshepsut. She was a queen who became a pharaoh. She talks about repairs or restoration that she does in this area. And she mentions the time when the Asiatics were in the midst of the Delta in Avaris. And then she mentions these people, vagrants, or, or some people think that we should interpret this as shepherds in their midst. And she says that they ruled without the sun. That is, they did not worship the sun god Ra. So we see their people from Canaan. They live in Avaris, which is, we'll get into that, but this is also the, the city of Ramses, as the Bible calls it. And they did not worship the sun god Ra. We see some of them are called vagrants or maybe shepherds. Uh, we know that there were shepherds there. We talked about those sheep bones. Now, that's really important because Egyptians themselves, they were not shepherds. They did not raise sheep. You go and look at Egyptian artwork and you question, where are all the sheep? I see a lot of other animals, but no sheep. Well, you read Genesis 46, 33 and 34. Joseph advises his family to tell them that they're shepherds so that they can live in their own area. And he says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. All right, so we see it's a separate group of people, and we see where they've come from, from Canaan. We also have Semitic names, names of these people who have come over from Canaan that show us that, again, not Egyptians living here, people who moved from Canaan. Uh, some of them are what we call these Jacob L. scarabs. Okay, so a scarab is a, a small item, a small artifact in the shape of the scarab beetle. And on the flat side of it, like you see here, they would often inscribe names and sometimes artwork. So this one says the name Jacob L., like Jacob. Uh, some, some interpret this as Jacob of God. Uh, some interpret the L as another thing. But this shows the existence, the use of the name Jacob in this Nile Delta region in the period of Jacob and Joseph in this pre-Exodus, pre-Moses period. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that these are referring to Jacob of the Bible, but it shows us that these types of people and this name was in use during the right period in the right place. Uh, we have uh, what's called an ostracon. So this is a piece of pottery with writing on it. They kind of use it like note paper in the ancient world. And a name that appears on here for one of the, the builders, the slaves, is Yushe or Jesse. And this is from about 1500 BC. So this is in the, the pre-Exodus period, what we might call the enslavement period. But there's a lot more. So remember back at the beginning, we read some of those quotes of archaeologists, and they said there's no evidence that Israelites lived in Egypt prior to the Exodus. Now, we can look at material culture. We talked about some pottery and weapons, and you know that links us to general groups of people. But we really have to see names in order to hone it down to something like the Israelites or the Hebrews. And in this document, Papyrus Brooklyn, we do see some specifically Hebrew names or biblical Hebrew names. This comes from what's called the 13th dynasty of Egypt. 
uh, approximately, this is generally dated to the 1600s BC, 17th century. So again, this is pre-Moses. And it's a fairly mundane document in terms of if you were reading it, it wouldn't be that exciting. You're just reading a list of names. There's 95 names that are preserved on this list. Uh, 37 of them have been classified as Semitic. So that means that they're names that belong to people who have come from Canaan. And they list their foreign name first, and then they list their new Egyptian name. And this is because they are servants, and they've been given a new Egyptian name. Uh, Just like Joseph was renamed with an Egyptian name in Genesis 41-45. Well, within this Semitic list of names, we also have some names that we see in the Bible, Hebrew names, Uh, or feminine versions of male names that we see in the Bible. So these are Menahemah, so this is a feminine form of Menahem, Asherah, Shifra, so that one you might remember is mentioned in the book of Exodus. This is one of the Hebrew midwives that's named. Akoba, Uh, there is a name similar to Job, which I might not say that's a Hebrew name, but it's Interesting, we do find it in the Bible. Uh, Sakara, probably similar to Issachar. Then we have this compound name that contains the name David, Dawidi. A sebto is not a name that we find in the Bible, but it is a Hebrew name. It derives from the Hebrew word for herb, and we find this in the book of Deuteronomy, so in this Moses period. Then we have Eve's name, Haya. And then we have this one that looks like Hebrew. Looks like the Egyptians wrote it in hieroglyphs, Hebrew. So somebody was named Hebrew. Now this seems to show us then that there were people with Hebrew names living in Egypt before the Exodus, even before the time of Moses. And in fact, these these people were servants. Now that's really about the closest that we can get to saying Did Israelites live in Egypt before the Exodus? Did Hebrews live in Egypt before the Exodus? Sure, we might want to find an Egyptian document that says, the Israelites under Moses fled the country, something like that. Uh, But the, the Egyptians generally did not talk about tribes of people like the Israelites. As I said before, they just called all those people to the east Asiatics. They weren't getting ultra specific there. Now, here's a list of those names, Hebrew names found in Egypt, and I put the biblical reference there just so you can see. So, if you read through that, the vast majority of these come from that very early period, the patriarchal and exodus period. And then we have a couple of them that are slightly later in the monarchy period. All right, so it looks like we have Hebrews living in Egypt. What about their enslavement. We read in Exodus 1.8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And then they get enslaved. Now, it doesn't tell us the name of this king, but we can look at Egyptian history and we can connect some dots and give, give a, a possible uh, idea for this. Now, we, we talked about the chronology before, right? So, 1446 B.C. for the Exodus. Now, if you're just using standard Egyptian chronology, this falls within what's called the 18th 
dynasty of Egypt. There are some alternative ideas, but this is a standard one. So what we're looking at today, and I think you'll see there's a lot of evidence that connects from this period. But this 18th dynasty started when a pharaoh named Amos I successfully came from the south and conquered or reconquered northern Egypt. And then he reunified the nation under one king. So for a while, southern Egypt was ruled by Egyptians. Northern Egypt was ruled by foreigners. He, he defeated these people called the Hyksos. And then he started a new policy. And it was mass enslavement of Asiatics. Why did he do that? Well, first of all, they were very angry at these people for having taken over half of their country for over a century. And they had all these people living there, so it was very convenient for them to just enslave them all. Instead of going and fighting foreign wars and capturing some and bringing them back, they were already there. So they start this period of slavery. And since this pharaoh was from a completely different dynasty and group than Joseph had been associated with, there's no reason really for him to know anything about Joseph. So that would be my hypothesis that this is almost the first beginning of the enslavement. And then not too long afterwards, we have in 1526 BC, the birth of Moses. And they're they're already uh, under oppression at this time. And where does this happen? It happens in the city of Ramses, as the Bible tells us in Exodus 1.11. And this passage also mentions the city of Pithom, and if you look at the Septuagint version of Exodus, it also mentions the city of Heliopolis. So we'll look at those three briefly. Now, Ramses uh, has been established as, or by scholars, basically universal agreement now that this, this was the archaeological site of Tel El Daba. Now, one of its earlier names was Avaris. You can see a map of it here. It's on the Pelusiac branch of the Nile River there. This was one of the largest cities in the ancient world. But what they found there is there was a massive settlement of these Asiatics from Canaan that happened back, we're looking again, time of Jacob approximately. Okay, so in this pre-Exodus period. And then these people are working as, as slaves later on after this gets reconquered by the Egyptians. And then there's a lot of building that goes on. Well, one of the things that they built was a massive palace complex in the 18th dynasty. This was built at least as early as a pharaoh named Thutmose III, who began his reign somewhere around 1504 BC. So we're looking at over 50 years before the Exodus. And then what happens with this palace? It gets used during his reign and into the reign of the next pharaoh, Amenhotep II. And then this whole palace complex is abandoned. Now, this isn't just like a little building. Uh, It's not just a, a building the size of this church. This is almost like the size of a, a town in the ancient world. So it's multiple buildings. It's got its own wall around it. It's got an a artificial lake in there. It's, it's huge, so it's very significant. The whole site hasn't been excavated. It's massive. But what this indicates to us is that something drastic 
happen for them to abandon this palace complex in the time of Amenhotep II. Now, the excavators don't know exactly what happened, but one of the ideas they put forth is there was some type of plague that happened, and they, so that it caused them to abandon the palace. And then they move, they move the royal residence to a different city in Egypt, which happened a lot in ancient Egyptian history. Well, the second uh, one we're going to look at is Pithom. Now, Pithom, not too long ago, scholars were unsure where this was located, but some very recent excavations have happened, which I think solidifies this location. And that is the site of Rataba, Tel El Rataba. There is an alternate site called Maskuda nearby. Now, both of these are along a place called the Wadi Tumilat. Okay, so this is basically a seasonal riverbed. Uh, usually dry riverbed, though. And this tumilat preserves the ancient Egyptian Atum, the god Atum. And so that's why archaeologists were looking in that region. Well, at Rataba, what they discovered is that there was a lot of building going on there and Semitic people living there in the early 18th dynasty and actually before also. But then Again, we have an abandonment. Around the time of Amenhotep II, people leave the site. They come back over 100 years later, and there's some more construction. But there's also some very interesting, specific types of construction that happens here before that abandonment. And that is, they build these massive storage silos, grain silos. In fact, that also happened at Avaris there during this 18th dynasty prior to that palace abandonment. Now, if you recall in Exodus 1.11, it says that the Israelites were forced to build these, these storage facilities or storage cities. We're not sure exactly how to translate that word, but this is something, I think, that links to the building that the Israelites were doing at those two cities. Now, we could also look at the third city that's in the Septuagint, Heliopolis, or the ancient city of On, and there also is evidence there of substantial construction during the time of Thutmose III and Amenhotep II. This, what I would say, is kind of your pre-Exodus Pharaoh and then your Exodus Pharaoh, Amenhotep II. Well, we have lots of evidence of slave labor uh, during this time. One of those is from Leningrad Papyrus uh, 1116a, uh, sometimes goes by a different name. That, that city has changed its name. But <clears throat> this shows that foreign people were forced into labor, into uh, construction projects specifically. And we have a lot of evidence from various sources about this. Uh, we have artwork that shows it, like on the tomb of Rekmira. This also comes from the time of Thutmose III. And it shows these foreign Semitic slaves making mud bricks. So if you see on the left there, uh, this guy is forming bricks. He goes and he gets gets the the clay and the dirt, and he puts it into a wooden frame. They mix it with straw, and then they take it over after it's been laid out in the sun to dry, and they build with it. All right, well, it's the same type of thing that the Israelites did. Here you can see this practice is actually still used in Egypt today, some places. But there's an interesting document called the Louvre Leather Roll, 
which is from the 13th century BC, so it's a little bit later, but it discusses this practice. And it even talks about how this group of slaves uh, was not given any more straw, and so they weren't able to meet the quota of bricks that they were supposed to meet, and they got beat as a result of it. So just like we see there in the Exodus story. I think another really interesting parallel uh, comes from Hatshepsut in the the early time of Moses. Now, if we just put those chronologies together, Moses is born during the time when this princess, Hatshepsut, is a young girl. And the palace, like we looked at, seems to be there at Ramses of Aris, right along the river. And so it would make sense that she would be going down and bathing at the river there. And it says uh, in Exodus that the princess saw the baby floating down the river and she saved him or told her servants to go save him and then adopted him. Well, why might this have been hot suit? Well, first of all, if we're just looking at the, the time frame, she's the only option. She's the only daughter uh, royal of royal birth who survived past infancy. So she's the only princess or daughter of Pharaoh who's around there at that time of Moses. But what's much more interesting, really, I think, is that what happens to Hatshepsut's legacy later on. So <clears throat> once the exodus has happened, uh, during the reign of Amenhotep II, who I would say is the Exodus Pharaoh, he, he had, starts this campaign where he systematically wipes her image and her name from all sorts of monuments. So you see in this photograph there, there are two deities, one on each side. And in the middle, that was originally Hatshepsut, but they carved out her image so she's gone. They did this all over Egypt. They did it to wherever she would put her name in a cartouche. And oftentimes, Amenhotep II carved his name over that. Well, there was a reason for this. This happened at other times in Egyptian history, too. But it it was always a big deal. Uh, Akhenaten is one that you may have heard of. So the Egyptians did it to him, too. Well, what did he do? He completely changed the religious system of Egypt and the way that they worshipped the gods and ignored some of the gods. So that was a really bad thing for them, so they tried to erase his memory. Well, we don't have an Egyptian document that tells us what it is that Hatshepsut did, but it must have been something very offensive to the Egyptians. If she is the one that saved Moses from the Nile and adopted him, well, certainly some of the blame for the events of the Exodus could have been put on her, because they could say, hey, if you never saved this baby and raised him, none of this ever would have happened. Well, what about some of the Exodus plagues? Is there any, any evidence or any Egyptian reference to these? Obviously, those were major events that threw Egypt into disarray, at least for a period. We read about all the destruction that goes on in that. And I would say that while there's, there's no uh, royal archive or you know, official document of the king that talks about these, there might be an Egyptian poem that discusses this time of the plagues. Uh, this is sometimes called the Dialogue of Ippur and the Lord of All. If you look it up online, oftentimes it's just shortened to the Ippur Papyrus. But 
This is a poem written by an Egyptian named Ipuwer. He's some kind of sage or wise man. Actually, from Egyptian sources, we see that he's more properly termed a bard. So he would write poetry that would be sung. Uh, he's, he's known from other Egyptian sources. And by the way, his name shows up in a document of the period of Hatshepsut and Thutmose III. So at least his name was being used in this pre-Exodus period, even if it's not him specifically. Well, in this poem, generally what he's doing is complaining to one of the gods of Egypt, who he calls the All-Lord. It's probably Ra. He was the preeminent god at the time. And complaining to the active pharaoh, because there's all sorts of death and destruction that has happened in Egypt. Everything is thrown upside down and the gods are shown to be powerless, which is something that he specifically talks about and complains about. Now, we only have one copy of this papyrus. It is a copy. It's not the original. It comes from the 13th century BC. So what does that tell us? Well, this poem and the events that happened in it, they were recorded before the 13th century BC. Most scholars, if you read work about this, will date this to what's called the second intermediate period. Some of them date it earlier, uh, but I think these days that's the most popular time period. So the second intermediate period is, is earlier than the Exodus. Uh, but why do they date it to this period? They don't date it there based on the analysis of the text, words and phrases and so forth. They date it based on the idea of this poem, that it's an allegory describing a chaotic period in Egyptian history. And so they look at this second intermediate period when Egypt was divided into two and there were you know, different rulers ruling different areas. And they say that's what it's talking about. But if we actually go in and look at some of the specific linguistics of this document, it really looks like it's an 18th dynasty document. And one explanation for this that I've seen is that uh, some say, well, maybe it was rewritten in the 18th dynasty. Maybe, but maybe that's when it was composed. That seems more likely. Well, what's, what's in here? A few of the things. The river is blood. That's one thing that's described. And blood is everywhere throughout the land. Now, this is the, probably the thing that tipped people off to first thinking, oh, maybe there's some connection to the Exodus plagues here. It's a very specific and very strange thing to say. But, you know, if that was the only thing in there, we might say, okay, that could just be a coincidence. But there, there are a lot of other parallels. It talks about Upper Egypt has become a wasteland. The land is injured. So we know something has happened, uh, some, I don't know, natural disaster or weather event that's turned the place into a wasteland. Pestilence is throughout the land. Okay, so there's plague and pestilence. Obviously, that was included within what we call often the plagues, although they weren't all plagues in the technical sense. Talks about herds, their cattle, their hearts weep, cattle moan. Okay, so livestock are having some problems. Maybe they're getting sick and dying. Hair has fallen out for everyone. Great and small say, I wish I could die. So there's something, some physical ailment here that's causing great pain. Maybe this is the boils. Uh, that's an idea I put forth. Talks about trees and plants destroyed and the food is gone. Well, there are multiple explanations for this, but could be locusts, could be fire, things like that. 
Another really interesting passage says that day does not dawn on the land of Egypt. And the power of Ra, the sun god, is not seen. The gods of Egypt are absent or powerless. So the day does not dawn on the land of Egypt. This, I think, could be referenced to the days of darkness. And they're not seeing Ra, also the sun god. And they are actually associating him with the sun. They don't just think of him as some spirit being. We read about children dying. Uh, the king is removed. The palace is fallen. And then there's another really interesting passage that talks about how these servants take and wear silver, gold, precious stones. Okay, So you remember at the end of the Exodus plagues narrative, the Israelites get all this silver, gold, jewelry, and so forth from the Egyptians and take off. So maybe this is a poetic retelling by a bard of the time of the Exodus plagues. Again, it's not an official document of the king, but it is an Egyptian version of what seems to be the plagues. Now that last plague was the death of the firstborn. And there's a very interesting Egyptian stele. So it's a large stone monument that's inscribed. And this was made by a pharaoh named Thutmose IV. So he is the son and the successor of Amenhotep II, who I would say is the Exodus pharaoh. And on it, he talks about how one day he was out hunting and he went near the Sphinx and he lied down and he took a nap. And then he had this dream and the gods came to him in the dream and made a deal with him. And he needed to remove the sand from the Sphinx. And then it talks about how if you do these things for you, it says, I, the God says, I will give you my kingdom upon earth at the head of the living. You will wear the white crown and the red crown upon the throne of Geb. The land will be yours, etc. So he gets this divine promise and endorsement from one of the Egyptian gods that he's going to become the Pharaoh. This is not something that we see every Pharaoh getting or, or talking about, making an inscription about. You know, why would he do this? So the typical explanation is that he was not the planned pharaoh. So he had an older brother who died. Uh, we don't know from Egyptian sources how he died, but he just he disappears, he dies. So this guy wasn't supposed to be the heir. And this then gives him sort of a divine propaganda blessing that, oh, the gods had this planned all along. You were actually supposed to be the next pharaoh, even though you had an older brother who's disappeared off of the scene. Well, if his father was the Exodus pharaoh and his oldest brother died in the plagues, that would also connect. Now we get to the Exodus pharaoh himself. And there are several interesting parallels. We might call this circumstantial evidence. Uh, by, them, by themselves, none of them would say, oh, the Exodus happened, this is the Exodus Pharaoh. But as, as a comprehensive argument, I think it's very suggestive. So Amenhotep II, we've talked about. Well, we have some requirements in the biblical text for this whole story and sequence of events. And one of those is that the Pharaoh preceding the Exodus must have had a reign of over 40 years. <clears throat> Why is that? Well, book of Acts tells us about this time period. And we also see in the book of Exodus that the Pharaoh 
who is in power when Moses flees before this 40-year period, he dies before Moses comes back. God says that the Pharaoh has died. Then he says the men seeking your life have died. You can go back to Egypt. And then he goes back after, after the burning bush there. Well, there are very few pharaohs who have a reign length over, 50, or over 40 years. And one of the few pharaohs who does is Thutmose III, who was the father of Amenhotep II. He reigned for 54 years. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find other pharaohs like this. Ramses II also ruled for much more than 40 years, but very few did. He's, Thutmose III is the only one in this area who had a reign length like that. Well, also, Amenhotep II became the pharaoh not long before the date of the Exodus, just a few years there. He was also an extremely arrogant pharaoh. Now, other pharaohs were arrogant too, but he seems to be even more so than some and compensating for the lack of accomplishment, perhaps. Uh, His father was a very successful ruler, had at least 17 military campaigns, This guy didn't do a whole lot. The military experienced a decline during the reign of Amenhotep II. In fact, there are almost no military campaigns of the Egyptians for about a century following his reign. Not until the time of Horemheb do we really see the Egyptian military start to go out of its land and start campaigning again. And this was something that normally they would do all the time. Uh, Sometimes every year, sometimes every several years, but certainly every pharaoh is expected to. But they didn't for a long time, and why not? You know, we don't know from Egyptian sources, but it seems like they're incapable of it. Uh, One of the other indicators of this is a group of documents called the Amarna Letters, where all these Canaanites are asking the Egyptian pharaoh for help with these people called the Habiru who are taking over Canaan. And they keep saying, send us troops, send us archers, or the land will be lost. And the Egyptians never do. So it seems like they they couldn't at that time. We talked about the palace being abandoned during the time of Amenhotep II, and also, again, of of Pithom being abandoned. Uh, This pharaoh, he also did a very, very interesting slave raid. So this was the last campaign that he did, and it wasn't to conquer a bunch of cities. It was to go take a bunch of slaves back. And he claims that he took back 101,128 prisoners as slaves. So this is way beyond what any other pharaoh ever claimed for the amount of prisoners taken. He seems to be trying to say, look, I have replenished our slave force. I don't know if, if his slant would be that, oh, these are actually the Israelites that I've recaptured, or you know, more likely it's probably just, I got these people that will replace them and they're better. Because he talks in a way kind of like that in another one of his uh, steelies. But he also says that he captured all these chariots and weapons. Look at this, 1,032 chariots. That's a huge amount. So it seems like he is replenishing his slave force and his chariots and his weapons that would have been lost in the Reed Sea. Okay, another interesting thing. Well, the earliest ancient source, historical source we have that names the Pharaoh the Exodus comes from someone called Manetho. Now, he was a priest and historian of ancient Egypt who lived in the 4th and 3rd century BC. So he had access to 
resources that we no longer do. And he also understood Egyptian in terms of it's his native language. Well, he is preserved in some other ancient writers like Josephus. And within some of these quotations, we see him talk about an exodus. He actually sort of talks about two exoduses, but the first one seems to be the, what we call the Hyksos expulsion. But this second one he talks about, uh, we know it's the Israelites because they go to Jerusalem, he talks about Judea and Jerusalem and even builds a temple. And he basically says they were lepers and that's why we kicked them out of the country. So it's kind of an Egyptian slant on it. But he names the, the Pharaoh during this time. And he says that it was Amenophis. That's the name he gives. So Amenophis is the Greek rendition of Amenhotep. So he's saying the Pharaoh, the Exodus name was Amenhotep. Now in, in antiquity, they didn't assign this one, two, three type of thing. But it really could probably only be Amenhotep II that he's talking about here. Um, and Josephus is not trying, he didn't change this. He's not trying to, to insert who he thinks is, is the Exodus Pharaoh because Josephus actually says a fictitious king's name. That is his view of it. So he thinks that he is actually discrediting Manetho and the, the leper story by saying he just makes up this king's name because he didn't know about Amenhotep. They didn't know all the names of the Egyptian kings at that time. Uh, but we do. So this tells us that that's actually what Manetho wrote. We've got some geographical markers. I mentioned earlier this comes in the Exodus itself, like Pihahiroth, Migdal, Baal Zephon, the sea. Uh, we see those mentioned in Egyptian documents of this new kingdom period we call it, 18th and 19th dynasty. And so we say, okay, those are actually historical places that come around uh, that time. Another really interesting geographical place uh, that's, that seems to be mentioned in the Bible and Egyptian sources is Dofka, which is talked about, for instance, in Numbers 33, 12 through 15. It's one of the stops in the wilderness. Well, Dofka seems to be uh, the Hebrew rendition of the Egyptian phrase meaning land of turquoise. So these were specific parts of the Sinai Peninsula where they mined turquoise. It was seasonal mining. They weren't there all the time. They took slaves to do that. Um, at this particular, uh, one of these particular sites, they found what's called these proto-Sinatic inscriptions. These are really important because it's, this is essentially the birth of the alphabet. These Semitic-speaking people, so like Hebrews, Hebrew is a Semitic language, uh, they took Egyptian hieroglyphs and they used some of them as alphabetic characters. And that was revolutionary because that allowed texts to be written like the books of Moses and for people to easily read that because the alphabet is so much easier to write and read than some of these other ancient systems. And then finally, we have the time of the wandering. Because this is all part of the Exodus story. You know, where's the evidence for them wandering in the wilderness? And, you know, archaeologically, in terms of settlement evidence, pottery, cities, whatever, we don't have that really. Well, you can't expect to find that kind of evidence of nomads from 3,400 years ago. 
But we do have some Egyptian inscriptions that actually mention these people they call the nomads of Yahweh. Well, that, that really can only be the Israelites, because if we go through ancient history and we look at everything, not just the Bible, all other sources, the Israelites are the only people who ever worshipped Yahweh. Nobody else did, contrary to some ideas of scholarship that this was some sort of you know, Edomite god. There's no Edomite sources talking about Yahweh. Nobody else worshipped them. And this, this is found, the earliest inscription of this is found on a temple of Pharaoh Amenhotep III. So he, he was the grandson of the Exodus Pharaoh, or the grandson of Amenhotep II, uh, from around 1400 BC. So this is right at the end of the wandering period, approximately. And it places them in this area east of Egypt, approximately Edom, Moab, Transjordan area. So right where they would be there at the end of the wandering. And it tells us that they are these nomadic people associated with Yahweh. Got to be the Israelites. Well, it also tells us that the Egyptians and even the Pharaoh himself was familiar with the name Yahweh and the people who worshipped him. And so they must have had some level of interaction. Well, of course, Moses is given the divine name in the wilderness and then he goes back and he even says it to the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh even says it. So, yes, the Exodus Pharaoh learned the name Yahweh, and so the Egyptians would have been familiar with that. And this this seems to corroborate the Egyptian familiarity with Yahweh. Well, 40 years later, you get to the conquest. That's a whole other subject with Joshua. Um, There's inscriptions then and, and settlement evidence that shows the Israelites have now uh, conquered and settled that region. But to sum this up, we have Semites or Asiatics settled in Egypt from the archaeology and the artwork. We've got Hebrew names in Egypt. Uh, we have the archaeological sites, the cities of Ramses and Pithom, and some parallels there. Uh, we've got the massive slavery. We've got the, the building, the mud bricks. Uh, we have this Ipuwer papyrus, possible poetic version of the plagues. The abandonment of the palace there. We have the slave raid by Amenhotep II. There's a decline in the military. There's the defacement of Hatshepsut and all her monuments. There's Thutmos IV and his divine promise of kingship, even though he had the older brother who disappeared. And then we have these nomads of Yahweh. So we seem to have Hebrews in Egypt before the Exodus, all sorts of chaos going on with many parallels. People who worship Yahweh wandering in the wilderness, and then then the Israelites show up in Canaan, sort of point A in time one to point B in time two. And that is your basic Exodus story. I think that in the future, there's going to be a lot more evidence that continues to come out to demonstrate the historical accuracy of the Exodus. But at least we have this to show us that, yes, this is a true story. These things actually happen. It's not just myth. It's not just allegory. We can depend on the words in the Bible. We can depend on the words in the book of Exodus and all of the, the application and also spiritual insights that come out of that. And as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, we should always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for an account concerning the hope that is in you. And part of that is also evidence that demonstrates the Bible is true. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, just thank you that we are able to gather here today to study your word and study the evidence that you have left behind that demonstrates the truth, the accuracy of your word. Thank you uh, for the message of salvation that is in your word and, and how you've shown to continue to work through history and work in history and continue to do that today. I pray that you would help us to remember uh, some of these facts and insights uh, to help us in our own study and help us also to answer questions of those who might be saying, why should I believe the Bible? Are there any reasons outside of the text itself so that we might be a witness to them? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.